Welcome to Make Things That Matter, the podcast where we explore impactful products and the cultures that create them. I'm your host, Andrew Scottsko, and if I'm doing my job well, each episode of this show will help you to do meaningful work, make things that make things better, and have a great experience doing it. My guest in this show is Michael O'Brien, an expert in the fields of community development, organizational culture, and human well-being who has spent more than a decade working directly with resilient yet underserved populations, including veterans, adults in recovery, returning citizens, and families experiencing homelessness. Michael lives at the intersection of the arts and the social sciences, speaking, teaching, and consulting nationwide in his quest to transform the way organizations understand and support human development, interaction, and performance. Currently, Michael serves as the Director of Learning at the Village of Arts and Humanities, a nonprofit headquartered in Philadelphia. He was selected as an Innovation Fellow by the Lindy Institute, a Corzo Fellow at the University of the Arts, and as if he had more free time, he's also on the faculty of the Curtis Institute of Music, serves on the American Academy of Arts and Sciences, Commission on the Arts, and the boards of two philanthropic institutions. This conversation explores the science of our humanity and how understanding those mechanics gives us a chance to create systems that lift up all of us instead of just some of us. I hope it pushes you to think about creating truly humane systems wherever you go, as it did for me. Without any further ado, I give you Michael O'Brien. Mike, welcome to the show. How are we doing today? Hey, thank you so much for having me. And I feel, feel I was going to say I feel good, but good isn't technically a feeling. Right. So I feel I feel calm. I like it. I feel a sense of calm, which is weird because it's like the calm before the storm like we were talking about. For sure. And for the listener, just to timestamp this, we're recording this on November 2nd, <laughs> day before the U.S. election officially happens. So if the world looks real different by the time you hear this, in right. some, I mean, in some way, like that's that's why. So just for context, if we say something that doesn't make any sense, the world has probably changed by the time you hear this. So that's what Mike and I are referring to right now. I was trying to think about where to start this conversation. And I realized that there's someone who I think is probably a pretty big influence that we share that I don't think we've actually talked about yet. Um, and I know you and I are both total nerds and love books <laughs> and papers, and we've spent a, a lot of time already geeking out on that stuff. Listening to you, I have a feeling that Martin Seligman and his work uh, on flourishing is is a pretty big thing in your world, just like it is in mine. And I was curious if that's true. And if so, if you tell me about how that came to be. Yeah, that's a great question. So, yeah, the work of uh, Seligman and, and a lot of his colleagues, um, uh, let me see if I can say his name right, Csikszentmihalyi, I believe is how he says his yeah, name. Csikszentmihalyi, yeah. yeah. Um, it looks so, it's, you said it's so different than it looks. <laughs> it so does. I remember I used to see it and was like, I don't, like, I got to look up the phonetic spell. Like, I didn't even try. That was like the second time I saw it. I was like, okay, if I'm going to read his work, let me just Google this. So I am very influenced by their work, and I encountered it when I was studying trauma theory and the literature around trauma-informed care through both a clinical mental health perspective and a public health perspective, and was looking for literature that did not just center on pathology or, mm -hmm. or center on healing through a lens that did not look at assets and didn't look at um, the context of resilience and thriving. And I was also, you know, I'm a, uh, an artist, but in both nature and trade. And so I was very interested in the role that art making and the process of 
art making and I work on narratives too. So I'm really interested in like the role that narrative sense making for self, for groups and others, what role it could play in in pushing you towards thriving, what role it played in healing and mechanisms therein or resilience and mechanisms therein. And that that's really how I, I encountered his work. It's a lot of the conversation that I think we're going to be exploring today is how do you bring some of those ideas into the world of organizations and business and, and commercial life out of just, you know, sort of applying those lessons of psychology to the rest of the world. To the point you made, I love his work because he did this really subtle but profound changing of the frame, right? If you think about it, and this goes back to the David Dylan Thomas conversation that came out recently, and we'll link to that in show notes about like the framing effect, this idea of going from less bad to more good. It's like a really subtle frame shift. But if you think about it, that's literally the frame shift that gave us the entire field of positive psychology. Because all the psychology up until that point was just about reducing pathology, not about increasing flourishing or increasing thriving. What was also interesting in that space is the history of positive psychology really dates back to the 20s, right? Like, Mm. it's fascinating. I found articles and read these lit reviews that really traced this history back. And I mean, you really can document that by, it was war. It was World War mm. II in particular. Um, but it was, the, that was the turning period of when you see this mass um, departure from anyone looking at, you know, what we would now call positive psychology. All the tenants were there, the emotional intelligence and blah, 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 blah. People left that to mm. because pathology had dollars attached to it. So mm. coming home from war with what we now know as post-traumatic stress disorder. Mm-hmm. It was profitable, you know, and mass. And this is just another way that capital betrayed us. <laughs> There's always this tension between the short-term urgent thing and the long-term good, where you think about the the need to respond in the moment to some soldiers coming back from a war all messed up. And, and you're like, oh, okay, so we have to do something about that. But it's so easy to not see the downstream effects of those decisions. And and it's just, I don't know, I think it's a fascinating thing. And especially when you think about decision making and leadership and how do you how do you make choices uh doing whatever you're doing? I might be pessimistic here, but I also think like I, I agree with you. But I also think there are people who understand those things and don't care. Mm. Right? Like I wish I try to give benevolence out to everybody as like a thing. Um, but I think the most recent example of that for me of why I was like, we just need to stop doing that and we will probably do better in public policy is actually the whole Purdue Pharma Sackler family, uh, opioid epidemic issue. Mm. But wow. I mean, that story is nuts. And then when you look at the history of the family's involvement, um, there's an article that recently came out that now that there are these court documents unsealed, their family has been doing this since like the 40s, bro. Hmm. I mean, it's wild. And it's just like, and they, but they knew this misleading propaganda based stuff. And it might even be a little earlier than that. And just for the sake of being on uh, your podcast and wanting to be factual, let's say between the 40s and 60s, just so there's a wider range of accuracy. <laughs> but it is well over a 40, 50 year period of these activities within that business structure on that family side being beyond questionable out of doubt and, in, and on public record being 
shady, right? And so I think, you know, it just opens up for me this case of like, right, it's, we are conditioned socially to give people the benefit of the doubt, but not that we shouldn't give the benefit of the doubt, but I think we, we, we've got to hold space for the fact that like folks be out here making money (laughs) and they, and they know what they're doing. That's true. So I want to start to explore, shift and kind of explore the, uh, what I understand to be a lot of the heart of your work. And, you know, I had the hardest time writing your bio. If I understand correctly, you have this background coming from the, the jazz world and the art world. Uh, and then from there, you've really had this interesting evolution into community healing and trauma work and racial justice and really just kind of expanding all these conversations and like living in the overlaps between them. There's something you said to me on a conversation we had a few weeks ago that was all about developing a framework to try to understand both formal and informal systems as a way of bringing out this sort of shared humanity. And I was hoping you could talk a little bit about that. Yeah, yeah. So I got to give some love to my theater world that birthed me into the professional art space, just because, you know, your listeners can't hear me, but I'm smiling just because like I have such a fond experience and memory with that space, um, Mm -hmm. you know, being a young man and learning how to work with narrative in in a formalized setting um, was so fascinating. And then going to to, to college for jazz um, was also fascinating. And culture, you know, the way I think about formal and informal policy is the way I think about culture, that it's both formal and informal. So there are things we codify, whether it's in an artifact, whether it's in policy, whether it's in legislation. And an artifact can be anything, a document, music, a piece of art, um, a process, right? Mm. These, but but they're codified, right? They're specifically captured in a way that is either permanently partable to steal language from copyright law, or is um, you know easily identifiable and replicable in an organized way that people can like directly point at, and there's. There's agreement and it's like officially adopted as a thing. That's the formal side, right? The informal mm-hmm. side, be it culture or policy, are those things that we don't speak, but we do. And they're regularly mm-hmm. practiced, right? So the example I like to give on that side is women in unequal pay, mm-hmm. right? Like, no one's got it written down in their HR manual that we will not pay women equally. But it's so widely practiced across so many mm-hmm. sectors that has actually fueled decades of research that is still valid mm-hmm. right? and, and, and even more nuanced is when you start to look at intersecting identities with the specific identity of being a woman. So being like a Mexican migrant woman, right? Mm-hmm. Being a black, you know, single mom, right? As an example of a huge economic data point in a lot of cities that people have to contend with, right? the types Mm -hmm. of jobs Mm -hmm. and roles they're in. So for me, it's important to look at all of those things. And, you know, I take a very indigenous perspective, which is that if you can't name it, you probably can't work with it. Hmm. And English is a very um, interesting language because we have, we, we have words, of course, but sometimes English is not as complicated as it needs to be to match the complexities of our humanity. Hmm. And I find that, you know, other cultures have 
much more intricate use of language, including tonality, mm. that allows for you to really get into specifics about what you mean and exactly what you're saying and the connotation that you're bringing to a matter. And so, you know, working within the English construct, I find that we need to iterate language and frames um, that allow us to think in terms and in the dimensionality of the complexities of the mechanics of our humanity um, and things that help onboard people quickly into that space so that they don't have to spend as much time reading all the things that you and I read. Uh, because they they might not have the index of time for that, right? Time economy is the real thing. For sure. Could you give me an example of how that shows up, like with the, the language specificity? Sure. Like even the language around that I just use, like the mechanics of our humanity, right? Like okay. breaking down what that means to people um, and, and allowing them to make connections between things that are typically seen um, in a disparate or siloed fashion. So stitching together for people the relationship between the imaginative faculties of the brain, the bias mechanism, Hmm. and our social nature, and the nuances of our social nature that are automatically going to create others. So yeah, linking those things together and giving people ways to think about not just their relationship to one another, but how they're act, how certain things get activated. So mm-hmm. how does the bias mechanism get activated? And what does imagination have to do with that? Why should you even care about imagination, right? Because imagination right now is stuck in the box of creativity. Um, and that's, to me, that's foolish, right? As opposed to thinking about it as the mechanics of your humanity. Being human is a complex endeavor. Right, <laughs> and we have oversimplified, and it's just kind of like, wow, our humanity is so much com- more complex, right? But the average person doesn't understand the complexity of all the mechanisms interacting in a given moment mm-hmm. to facilitate the experience that you're having, right? Mm-hmm. And the experiences that other people are having, and the intersection of those things, because that's what a system is, you know, partially all about. And the nature of a system is that you actually experience the system all at one time, right? All these things are happening mm-hmm. at one time, consciously or unconsciously, you're experiencing lots of things at one time. And so for me, that's what I mean by like the mechanics of our humanity. When you are imagining into the future, Thinking about what you're going to eat for dinner is an imaginative activity as much as thinking about 100 years from now is, as much as Mm -hmm. thinking about your career is, right? Right. All of these things are undergirded by the imaginative faculty. How often Mm. are we talking about imagination in those contexts? How often are Mm. we talking about the fact that when you see me with a hoodie, it is your imaginative faculty run amok that has you seeing a 60 black on a hoodie and automatically thinking about danger. Now we get to talk about the imagination in relationship to the bias mechanism and the way those things are happening simultaneously and concurrently to inform you of a moment or a thing that might be happening and are completely compounding and impacting the experience or influencing the experience that you're having in this given moment, right? Another way to think about this comes from a book I read called The Neuroscience of Emotions. Fascinating book. And the the writers, the researchers talk about the fact that, you know, research with emotions is so tricky because so much of it's done with animals. And you mm-hmm. can't, there's one major thing you can't do with animals, get context. 
Mm-hmm. All you can do is observe circuitry and physiology and molecular stuff yep. like, and look at behavior, but you cannot get context and what and, and meaning, right? And meaning making is a huge dimensionality for the human experience. And so uh, they talk about emotions and the way that we colloquially talk about emotions needing to be processed through something I think is brilliant. And they call it the emotional experience, which is three things happening simultaneously. Hmm. Physiologically, what's happening in your body? Uh, behaviorally, what's happening? What are you doing? And then three, the meaning that you're making out of the experience that you're having in that moment. Mm. And that those mm-hmm. three things combined create what they mm. call an emotional experience, which is what most of us are referring to generically when we're talking about emotions or at least two out of those three dimensions. I just add a fourth category in there or like 3.5 or th- there's th- their third one around meaning. 3A is the meaning you're having in the experience. I add 3B, the meaning that you bring to the experience because humans, we are the accumulation of our experiences, right? Literally. Mm -hmm. So we're all walking around with a certain context. Yeah. And you bring that to the moment too. So that was my long answer. You know, you said a minute ago, your average Joe isn't walking around thinking about or deconstructing these systems in this way, right? They're just experiencing the systems all at once. Like you're saying, they're experiencing the impact of multiple systems simultaneously at all times. The listeners of this show tend to be people who who give a shit, right? They want to make things better. Everyone listening to the show, in some way, wherever they are, they want to have that impact. So I guess my question is, how much do they need to understand this? And what do they do with this understanding? So how much depends on how much impact they want to have, right? Intentionality matters, mm-hmm. right? Um, and even more so, your impact matters. So in this context... How much do you need to know? Well, what are you trying to accomplish? That's what I ask. Um, okay. These systems that we live in, right? Let's let's get explicit and name some of them. Okay. Racism, sexism, classism, homophobia, transphobia, ableism, ageism. These are specific. They're insidious. They have centuries behind them of policy and precedence and informal and formalized culture. I don't understand how we dismantle them without being intentional. You gotta, we have to learn how those systems work and tie it to the mechanics of our humanity because it's the mechanics of our humanity that make those systems intransigent, that make them reticent to change, right? That make Mm. things feel like cultural norms, but it's not that they're, they are cultural norms, but that doesn't mean they're okay. Mm Mm-hmm. Right. Normative does not mean or the other term, the way I phrase it typically for people is homeostasis does not mean health. Right. Those are not they're not synonymous. It just because it's the status quo doesn't mean it's a good one. Boom. Right. So like that's the thing here. So I can't tell someone how much if you ask me how much I'm like the government needs to pay for everybody to get this this human sciences reeducation for three years post whatever the hell they did somewhere else. And I'm surely will join the team to help build that out with a great collection of diverse minds from around the globe. Um, but that that's that's my extreme answer. But how much sure. depends on what you are hoping to accomplish, who you hope to be in the world. Mm-hmm. We are in an unprecedented time where what we need right now are systems of transition to get us mm-hmm. to this next space. Um, so that that's wholly on the other person. But what we can't do is act as if not being aware is a hundred percent acceptable or not knowing is a hundred percent acceptable. I will say that the tools might not be there for people to learn the way that 
is most appropriate for them, but that's not everybody. So, you know, Mm -hmm. like there's some nuance there. What do you do with that stuff? We're talking about equity, diversity and inclusion, racial equity. We're talking about things, belongingness. We're talking about things that we've never actually tried to do. We've never tried to solve for racism in America. Mm-hmm. Right. Like that's it's so interesting. <laughs> People are like, here's our vision for an equitable future. And that's what we lead with. And I'll ask them, are you aware of how exclusion has actually taken place? Can you name specifics? Because I'm interested in how you're going to measure that. Mm. If you have no idea how the hell it operationalized itself. Right. And people look mm-hmm. at me with big eyes and I go, yeah, 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 no, it's cool not to know. But let's get some let's get some anybody that works for me as a consultant knows I have a phrase. We got to put corners on this puzzle. Mm. Yep. We got to put corners on the puzzle and make sure that we are all looking at the same outline. At least we can collectively figure out how to fill it in. Sure. But we got to at least know that we're looking at the same the generic frame of a reference and picture that we have some shared constructs cognitively here. Like, otherwise, this is just going to be messy. And it's not that humans can't be messy because Barnaby and human is messy. So what you do with all this information is design better systems. What you do with all this information is dig into the nuances around what fuels conflict. And and conflict is human. We're always going to have conflict. That's a thing, right? It's a given. Part of being in a healthy relationship is sometimes having Mm -hmm. conflict. The, The trick here is, how do you address and deal with the conflict, mm. right? And mm-hmm. that's where we have the choice to be humane or not, right? Conflict is a part of the human experience. How you deal with it is where you get the choice and whether you're going to be humane and civilized about it or be nasty. That is a really useful distinction. I'm so glad you said that. I love the direction we're exploring here. Let's, let's keep going with it, right? We're talking about designing better systems. We're talking about impacting ideally, large swaths of human behavior and human systems, which which means we're talking about behavior change, which means we're talking about changing worldviews and yes. narratives. And mental models. Yeah, and mental models. And that's sort of like the, the chain of logic my mind just starts hopping through. Let's talk about that. Going back to David Dole Thomas, like this was the tagline or one of the taglines from that episode was, you know, whoever you are, whatever you're working on, you're a designer. You're designing something. You're designing some kind of system, some kind of human experience, some kind of interaction, whether that's a meeting or a policy or an event or whatever. So talk to me about this. How do we, if we're someone who has this intention and we want to give life to it, right? And and have help that become real in the world. How does someone listening to this who has that intention, how do they start to use the tools of system design and narrative to affect behavior change? You know, just to drop a light one on you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sure. This is simple stuff. Simple stuff. No big deal. I solved this yesterday. You've got like a five-step thing for this, right? Yeah, yeah. Okay, good. The first one is don't (laughs) vote. No, I'm just kidding. It's a bad (laughs) Please go vote. No, no. Oh, God. (laughs) Bad form, Mike. Bad form. Go vote, everybody. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, okay. So a couple of things here, right? We have all been reared in what I call dehumanization as a cultural norm. And what that means is that we've all been raised to not intrinsically honor a shared definition of humanity that has us all literally seeing each other as equal and worthy. Lots of names for how that's taken place. White supremacy is one that comes to mind, right? Patriarchy is another one that comes to mind. 
nationalism. There are all kinds of ways that that has been reinforced for all of us. And it's, and, and again, when you marry it with the mechanics of our humanity, looking at things like the imagination, bias, to understand talk about the stress mechanism in a moment, trauma, mm-hmm. um, the way memory works, right? Like, and memory is not just one system. Like, it in itself is this complex thing we're still figuring out. When we look at all of that and have to reason through it, it's easy to see how, as a Black person, I can be raised in white supremacy and actually have internalized feelings against other Black people. What mm-hmm. women can mm-hmm. practice elements of sexism against other women, mm-hmm. right? You can identify with a group and practice things that still dehumanize that group and yourself or dehumanize others that are in that group while still not necessarily fully dehumanizing yourself in the way you dehumanize others. It is wholly possible and happens all the time that we practice internalized phenomena of, of like oppression. Internalized oppression is a real thing. Having to navigate all that is so hard. And so it starts with that recognition that you've not been raised to be sensitized to the humanity of others in a way that matches how you should be and are often taught to be sensitized to your own humanity. And in some ways, we will sensitize ourselves to others' humanity and sacrifice ourselves because we were taught mm-hmm. that we weren't worth much. Our group isn't worth much. These people are the ideal. Got to get their acceptance, all kinds of stuff, right? Yep. So this is tricky and crazy stuff that we have got to work through and name because it shows up in the workplace. It shows up when we're trying to get hired. It shows up when policymakers have to imagine because that's the thing about policy. Policy is you imagining on behalf of the well-being of others. Mm, that's a beautiful definition. Uh, thank you. You know, there's this misconception that like, oh, I got to be the only one saying a thing. And I'm like, <laughs> those are the people that get burned at the stake. So you know, like, <laughs> we have plenty of ex- And then later on, after they're dead, we're all like, oh, well, you know, he wasn't wrong. Whoops. Uh, and I'm not, oh, that was a, that person was a martyr. <laughs> <Right>. Oops. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not trying to be that guy. So I think it's exciting when there are natural spaces of convergence where you like through your reading and work and practice, you found a thing, it resonates, and then you find an article that backs that up. Like that's, to me, that's dope. And, you know, so that policy thing matters. And this is the hard part, right? Our egos get involved so heavily. Nobody wants to be, nobody wants to readily go, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I was raised with dehumanizing lenses. And yeah, my policy iterates out of that space. Absolutely. Like, no one's going to say that, but we know that's true. Listen, you cannot tell me that at 75, being white and growing up in America, Mm -hmm. you were taught that black people were worth as much as you are. You can't tell me that being a 75-year-old white man in this country, that you honestly were taught to value women as your equal. And even if you were taught that, the practice of culture for the first 30 plus years of your life. Just watch Mad Men. The practice (laughs) of culture for 30 years plus of your life never once backed that up. That is not, behavior does not change that quickly because you will it to be, or because you see a desirable thing that you want to go, yeah, that's my vision for myself. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's a mirage of yourself. (laughs) Let's be clear. Right. And myself included. Right. So much of this work is deep and personal and you got to interrogate it and dig through it. And it can make you feel like you're not a good person. But don't, that's a trick. That's a mind trick to loop you around to do the easiest thing, 
which is sometimes just be silent. Hmm. I always, I always encourage people to interrogate silence. Silence does not mean <laughs> that they get it or agree. So interrogate silence. Right. So these, these mind tricks, because none of us want to feel bad, right? The human experience is not built around feeling bad. It's actually built around feeling good and positive reward. You don't actually chase and pursue bad, emotional, effective experiences. Like that's, We run away from it. Right. Right. I hope this is giving you an answer. It's a little global, but this is where like, it's it's difficult because you've got to investigate the ways that powerlessness, helplessness, and a lack of control operationalizes itself in people's lives in the context of policy, both formal and informal decisions that are actually available to them, right? Versus this idea that everybody has freedom of choice. Sometimes people are literally only given the choice of like, do you want to die by an X? a gun or do you want to drink bleach and ammonia mixed? And you're like, I kind of just want water and a nap. That's not a choice here. Again, X, gun or bleach and ammonia, right? And you're just kind of like, I don't want any of it, right? And we we <laughs> just think that everybody has this range of choice mm. that's just not fully available. And when, when you cannot have a full expression of range of choice, particularly around things that are life affirming, that does do something psychologically and effectively to the body. So what's it like when that happens in the workspace? What's it like when that's happening in an election season? What's that like for you when it's happening in a family dynamic, right? Like, because the body is the body. The mechanics of our humanity are the mechanics of our humanity, no matter what environment we're in. Mm-hmm. It's not shifting for us, right? Like, mm-hmm. it's not like, I got one body over here. And then when I go to school, I got this other body I put on. Like, that's not... That's not how this works. You know, I'm so glad we're talking about this stuff, but I, I have to tell you where I'm at. I'm, I'm sitting here and I'm trying to process this in real time. I'm emotionally bought into everything you're saying. What do I do with this tomorrow? I'm trying to figure out how to operationalize what we're talking about. So some of this has to do with your level of positionality, right? Can you Do you control a system to change it? Hmm. If you don't, well, then you can't go for systems change, which is a part of what we're talking about, right? The workplace culture, mm-hmm. this culture, that, and blah, 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 or the family dynamic. Yeah. The parent sets that dynamic, right? If it's the classroom, it's the teacher setting that dynamic. So if you're not in a place of power, then there isn't that much that you can do in the context of systems change now. There are ways for those who don't traditionally have power to impact systems. We call that work organizing. So mm-hmm. I just want to like put some guardrails up for like, what can I do right now? Part of it depends on you doing a dive into the level of privileges that are available to you at this given moment. Now, I might mm-hmm. be a black man, um, you know, I'm, I identify as gay or queer, whatever. And so I got some things, but I grew up poor. I got some things built against me. However, I'm on the board for two different philanthropic institutions. I do national level consulting. I got different clients around, you know, in, in Philly. I'm doing, I, I have privilege. I earned it. I worked really hard, but some of it was also just given to me because of the shitty way that society works. Take a, an inventory of like, what do you got to work with right now? What are your assets that you have to work with? What are the liberties? How can you show up in relationship with other people, right? So people want these like, how can I do this right now? Part of this work is you need to do the work on yourself. Dehumanization is not the fact that someone else isn't human. It's that the lens that you have, it's the gazer's problem. The lens that you have by which you are therefore 
receiving stimuli and then also perceiving the world, that lens is where the dehumanization is happening. Hmm. So you got to do that work on yourself. That's not a, how do I check the button? This is, I'm not trying to sound funny with this, but this is where a lot of white privileged folks don't like to call themselves privileged. They don't want to shift that lens. Mm. One of the core definitions of privilege is immunity. Everybody, when when you hear the term privilege, people get lost in like, oh, I worked really hard. And it's like, yes, no one's saying you didn't. Let's go to the definition in the dictionary and look at the second input that says immunity. Have you thought about all the things that you have never had to think about? Of course not. That's how implicit bias works. Yeah, it's a privilege that you didn't have to think about it. And so you're immune to things that you don't even realize you're immune to in society. Mm. That's why white people can call the cops and never have to think about it. Mm -hmm. And in the black community, when something happens that is absolutely terrifying and scary, we'll go, oh, what do we... I I can't call the cops. Mm. Right? That's just one simple level of immunity. That's not so simple. But I'll I'll shift it because that's, that's a little political. When you're at work and something happens that is completely egregious, but as a black person, you already know, if I say something, I'm going to be the angry black person. I'm going to be the loud black person. I'm going to be, uh, there are all these tropes and stereotypes that I got to fight through. Are they going to gaslight me? Blah, blah, blah. And by the time you've worked through the mental exhaustion of that after a couple of hours, you're just like, fuck it. I don't, excuse my language. I don't even care. Yeah. And so it's not even worth And then what happens when two weeks later, that thing you should have talked about has now metastasized. Mm, now it's bigger. And and who ends up hurting is typically you. It might hurt the company a bit, but typically it's going to hurt you even more than the company. So, you know, there are all kinds of ways that people are having to navigate not having certain kinds of immunity that are invisible to other people. And what I'm also talking about are sources of stress that have a physiological and psychological impact on people and and also attributes to cognitive drain. Mm -hmm. Because you got one brain that's solving problems and me trying to solve problems for my job and solve the problem of racism on my job and solve the problem of sexism if I'm a woman on my job who happens to be of color. Like, good grief. Your brain can only do but so much at a time. So I think the first thing for your listeners is they need to investigate and interrogate those spaces for themselves. They need to learn about these things. Mm -hmm. They need to study. I'm going to do a terrible thing and ask you to pick one resource that you would direct people to as a first stop. Obviously, it depends on who they are, where they are. But if you had to pick one, what would you say? That's the thing. Like, let's put our money where our mouth is. There's a great book called Moral Tribes. If you don't read it, get it on audiobook. Like, here's the thing. For those, the, the kind of people that are probably listening to this, I keep it a being with you, right? People listening to this are people that could do this work more than likely. Mm-hmm. Right? Yep. So let's give them some resources to work with. So let's do the work or, or don't complain. That's my thing. It's like, people like to be, oh, I'm so confused. I lost. And I'm like, yeah, sometimes you're lost. Other times that's a scapegoat. Mm, yeah. Right. And we've got to be able to, to to suss through that. So I'm happy to provide plenty of resources. I'll, I'll put you together five videos, five articles, five books. Cool. And we'll put that right in the show notes. Thank you so much. Absolutely. Let's bring this in specifically more on the workplace. We've touched around it a little bit, this idea of the future of work. Right. And we've talked about there's such impacts on people's experience through these systems. You, know, you had said to me before that the future of work really is centered around humanity. And like these are some of the mechanisms we need to understand 
to create a, a humane future of work. And so I'd love to have you just talk about that a little bit more. So first off, so I'll give you a couple just prompts to, to run with here. When you say the future of work, what do you mean? I mean, everything from 15 minutes into the future to 20 years into the future to 100 years into the future. I mean, where is work going? What is its purpose? Does it need to look the way that it looks right now? What faulty premises is the current construct of work built on that won't hold up in the future? We got to interrogate that. Borrowing from the indigenous world, because I love to borrow from the indigenous world. The future is seated in this moment that we're in right now. Mm. They're not disconnected from one another. Western thinking is so baffling to me because it is so specifically disentangled. What do you mean by that? Well, back to systems theory. You experience it all at one time. If you get a PhD, what are you really taught to do? You're taught to go deep. Mm -hmm. You're not taught to look wide Mm -hmm. in most cases, right? It's about a slice of a moment, a deep slice of a specific moment in time. But every researcher knows the most fruitful research is longitudinal. But that's that's not the framing that we get, not even just in academia, but just in the world. Right? Because expedience is this thing, right? And this is what I mean by the West did some things that we need to unpack and ask, are, is this good for the mechanics of our humanity? Is this good for us as we move forward to try to create systems that actually support human thriving and human flourishing? Mm-hmm. But how do you support human thriving and human flourishing if you don't even understand the mechanics of our humanity? How do you understand the ways that Humanity has suffered and specific groups of people have really suffered if you don't have a framework of understanding not just the mechanics of our humanity, but the inputs for development. What are inputs for development? Developmental science talks about human beings developing in four dimensions, um, the physical or biological, the psychological. Sometimes I say emotional, but I've started shifting that a bit based on our conversation about emotional experiences. The social or relational is another word that you could probably put in there. And then the fourth dimension being the meaning-making dimension, which they term as spiritual, Mm, right? Not religious, but meaning-making. And there's no bigger meaning that we have to uh, deal with than that of life and death and the fact that it's out of our control. We might be able to influence it, but it's actually out of our control. And there's so many other things in life out of our control that we still have to make sense of, right? And so you don't have a choice about whether or not you're going to make meaning. It it actually is a part of the way that human beings make sense of the world and are able to maneuver it, build mental models, worldviews, manage expectations, the whole nine. All four of those dimensions are co-occurring and pretty much subsumed within one another. You're not, there is no such thing as only being impacted in one area and and not another, right? Like that's just not real. Yeah. Um, Even if you're not consciously aware of it, whether it's a system or you as an individual are not consciously aware of it, those elements of, or dimensions of development, they're at play and they're interacting Mm -hmm. with one of their dynamic. They influence one another. These dimensions of input for human well-being to me are based on those four developmental dimensions, right? So now we can talk about, well, what physical or biological inputs, what psychological inputs, what social or relational inputs, what spiritual or meaning-making identity-based inputs are, are there, right? So you can talk about those things in varying constructs. You can talk about it in terms of health, all four categories, risk and harm in all four categories, 
how often do we get to talk about racism in the context of social health or social risk, social harm? How often do we talk about racism in the category of spiritual harm? We know there's financial harm of these things, but there are other categories that are directly linked to our humanity, directly linked to development. And we don't have the language to talk about those systems, their impacts and their outcomes and outputs. But we can. Right. The tools are there to do that. We just got to start linking that together because we can measure harm. We already know we can do that. But. Does it match the complexity of our humanity is the question. As a quick sidebar, doing this work, I think I want to just call out a fallacy that, you know, oh, I'm going to just go read these books and suddenly, bam, I'm going to have the answer. Right. I, I don't think it works that way. I think it's like the, that, you know, going back to your idea of the lens, right? These, these books, this work is like to work on the lens so I can see more clearly how to move all the systems I impact from less bad to more good. Yes. I'm just notating that for myself. The promise I make to you as the listener is that this is a, a learning journey, yeah. a shared learning journey, not that every episode is going to just hand you the crystal ball of answers or whatever. It's like, no, like we're doing this one step at a time and this is, this is the step right now. Um, so I just wanted to notate that for both for myself and for, for whoever's listening. No, I love that. Thinking about harms, how do you know the way something has impacted someone except to be in relationship with them and talk to them? Mm -hmm. Right. So like you can learn things, but then you also have to be an experience and relationship with other people to get context around it. So some of this is to help you develop the right questions. Maybe Mm -hmm. some of it's also to help you shut up and learn to listen and be a better active listener. Right. One of the things that I present to people is, you know, here's a thing you can do, right? You want to do now? We can do now in the context of changing our framework on empathy. So empathy does not have a standard definition. Uh, it really depends on the researcher and the construct and the tools they're using to validate the construct and definition. So there's some that say that empathy is about like emotional resonance, which means that you can feel or experience the same emotional affect as another person. There are some people mm-hmm. that say, That's not empathy. It's not fully empathy until there is an activity or behavior produced that is altruistic in nature or in service of another person. Right. Who's right? Who's wrong? Doesn't matter. It's based on the researcher. Right. And there are all kinds of other nuances that people have added. Yeah. So we don't fully understand what we mean when we say empathy. Right. So when any anytime I hear someone quote an empathy study, I said, how did they define empathy and what were the constructs therein, and what were the tools used to validate that? Because that's going to tell me the working mental model of what we're talking about for any results and anything you're telling me that's moving the needle. Because in one definition, it's but you can feel everything you want, but that doesn't mean systems are going to change. Mm-hmm. Yep. You know what I mean? So that's why I think it's important to interrogate that stuff. I'm doing a lot of reading right now around the ideas around empathy and compassion. One of the things I thought was interesting was they were, they were drawing a distinction between the emotional experience that naturally arises when you connect with in that relational sense, suffering of another person. And then how there can, like, there can be out of that emotional experience, there's a natural urge to act. Point is like, there's the, the feeling. But then there's the action and they're not the same thing. And they like, there's that extra step. And sometimes I think maybe the dehumanization is, is the lens that blocks that extra step mm. or blocks us from seeing and then feeling in the first place. Like it just cuts off the chain. It just cuts off that relational chain. Yeah, that's powerful. I like that. Please send that over. 
Too bad you live a coast away. You'd be my nerdy buddy if we lived. Yeah. <laughs> next time, next time we're in the same city, we're gonna have some serious nerd out sessions over yes. coffee. Um, but I'll tell you, I'll give you two books on it though that I'm that I'm in the middle of right now. Yeah. Uh, one is The Boundless Heart by I think Christina Feldman, mm-hmm. and the other one is the I think it's called The Fearless Heart, mm. and they're both about uh, what in Buddhist practice is called the Brahma Viharas, that means the sort of divine abidings. There are these four qualities of the heart that are considered to be immeasurable. Mm. You can never have enough of them. And those four are loving kindness, compassion, equanimity, mm. what am I missing here, and joy. Yeah, those are the four. I did. In Buddhist philosophy, these these four kind of balance each other out. Like when one becomes unbalanced, the next one in the chain kind of comes in to balance out the imbalance of the one before it. Like, for example, when when compassion gets overwhelming, right? When you have, I don't know if the term is empathy fatigue or compassion fatigue. Compassion fatigue, yeah. Yeah. Like when you have compassion fatigue, the idea of sympathetic joy comes in to, to, to fill you back up. Mm. The idea that like when you when you feel the the fatigue of compassion, of you just feel drained from it, the idea of sympathetic joy, which is the idea of being joyful at someone else's good fortune or joy, mm. can come in to refill you again. Or when that becomes, when, when joy or compassion becomes too much out of balance, equanimity co- can come in to have you regain balance. I thought it was a very interesting because sort of circular system. Mm. So yeah, those two books uh, were recommended to me by a teacher I practice with, uh, and, and I've been diving in there. That's dope. I, I love that idea. I'm going to explore that. So what's fascinating to me is the world has been trying to explain the same stuff forever, right? Like for humans have been trying to explain... The human endeavor and human experience forever. We've been trying to build society around this understanding or the lack thereof forever, right? So, mm-hmm. you know, I, I've just found a way to use science because the world is just insidious with the dehumanization practices. And because capitalism has become a science in itself mm-hmm. and is predicated on political economy, right, to like really flourish, and policy and science have this you know, hand-in-hand relationship. This was the way I chose to fight Mm -hmm. systems of intransigence, right? Like racism and sexism and blah, blah, blah. Yeah, the thing with empathy that I think your folks can practice right away in the do now perspective, you know, building on what I just talked about, I I did a lot of reading and research in this area. And from digging into the neurobiological and like molecular ideas around how empathy probably works for across a lot of these constructs, what would probably work best is for people to be selfish first, but selfish in a tricky way, because humans are pretty egoistic (laughs) in general. And we're pretty selfish when we don't even mean to be. And we just don't call it that. But think about taking a Mm -hmm. shower every day is selfish. That's but it's a good kind of selfish, right? Mm -hmm. Taking care of yourself is selfish, but it's a good kind of selfish. Um, Mm -hmm. So when people practice empathy, a lot of the default is to center yourself and the other person's story. And we tend to vocalize it, but we tend to do it in ways that diminish or minimize the other person and equate their experience to your imagination or your imaginative activities. Mm -hmm. So if I've never had cancer, when someone is talking to me about that experience, I'm like, oh my God, I know exactly how you feel. No, you don't. Hmm. No, not really. (laughs) You have no idea what I feel. You have no idea what it's like to feel exactly what I'm feeling in this moment. You don't know that. You don't know what it's like. I don't know what it's like to be a white male. You don't know what it's like to be a black Mm-hmm. We don't. We will never know that experience. And to assume mm-hmm. that I know what you feel 
directly like that, it's again, it's minimizing, it's diminishing. And in the moment of relationship building, right, and, and thinking about social health and the psychological health they're in, and even meaning making, those moments can just pull people back into themselves to try to find a space of safety again, because you're accosting them in that moment. Mm-hmm. So the selfish part comes in by being an active listener to identify the emotional experience that that person is speaking to and then locate that emotional experience on the inside. Because what you don't know is the identity-based factor or the social factor that that person is experiencing. Yeah. But humans have a very comparable index of emotional experiences. Yeah. And so if you can locate the emotional experience on the inside, wow, that sounds like a powerlessness moment. That sounds like you were terrified. That sounds like you felt walked over and unheard and silenced, right? If you can find those experiences on the inside first, identify and go, yeah, I know exactly what that emotional thing feels like. And then two, recognize that because I don't understand the social factor or the identity factor that is bringing on that emotional experience, I've recognized that though we have some resonance there, I still don't understand how it's operationalized or coming to life in your world. And it's possible that what I even can recognize in feeling is magnified five, 10, 20 times in your world. So while it's not an accurate emotional experience to what you're going through, it is a much better starting place than me going like, Oh, I can figure out what it's like to be black and walk. I know what it's like to be a woman and walk. I don't know what it's like to be a woman. I am a cis man. I do not know. I don't know the trans experience. I don't know. And it's okay to not know. Mm -hmm. If you start with the emotional experience, recognize that it's still limited in its ability to you for you to really understand that person's experience. But as a better starting place, you can ask new questions. How can I be a better ally? Mm -hmm. How can I be an accomplice or a comrade if that's what they need, right? So for men, mm-hmm. how do I underscore women in a meeting when they're getting run over, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, Because I know what it's like as a black man to not feel heard, but I'm also a man. And so there is some privilege I got that I can exercise. So how can I mm-hmm. show up for women in the workplace in a particular kind of way? How can I show up and ask what people need in a given moment? How can I be attuned? And this gets back into this idea of dehumanization and why empathy in this construct that I'm, def- that I'm framing out for you, I think matters. Part of the thing with dehumanization is you also don't fully consider somebody's needs because you don't see them as fully human. So they're not going to have a range and index of needs that match yours. Mm, Yeah. Or you're just not even going to think about them as being important or as important as yours or people who are in your in-group. Even if you don't have a defined in-group, by default, you got one because that's how Mm -hmm. the mechanics of our humanity work. So going back to those four developmental inputs or those dimensions, the biological, the psychological, social, spiritual or meaning making dimensions, we can start to think about other people's needs in those areas and ask like, what might they need to feel safe in those areas, to feel like their well-being is being attended to in those areas? What am I blind to in terms of their needs in those areas, right? So I just find that having a different frame around empathy that like the one I just framed for you just opens up new possibilities for the subtle ways that in really micro relationships can start to shift bits of culture in a workplace. I want to ask you one more question. Going back to that fourth dimension, the spiritual dimension, the meaning making, that's something I've been thinking a lot about. And when I think about the things that are meaningful and significant, you know, all those ideas mattering, meaning, significance, they're all gateways into the same underlying thing of needing to belong to and serve something greater than ourselves. That's how I conceptualize it. 
And I'm curious how you conceptualize that when you talk with people about meaning making, like what does it mean for something to mean something? You know, as meta of a question as that is. I actually don't think that's meta at all. I'm trying to get a PhD looking at the intersections of epistemology and policy and impact on things like economic policy, workplace culture, et cetera. What is knowledge? Who gets to say what's data? Who gets to say what data matters? Who gets to throw out data sets just because they don't conform to what you're looking for? Like, I think all of this is wrapped in your question. Mm-hmm. And and to be honest, how do you know what matters? The problem is we've got to spend time digging that question apart as society and as individuals. And we got to give people space for that and give them the language and tools to assess for that and give them the permission to assess for that. Because what we've been handed is prepackaged meaning now. That's a part of culture, mm. right? We go back a hundred thousand years. Our ancestors are handing us down prepackaged meaning. They, how do I know? They wrote it on caves for us, right? That's in the walls. <laughs> you know what I mean? We find artifacts like that. We know that people were handing down prepackaged meaning. That's a part of our journey. So there's nothing wrong with handing down prepackaged meaning. There's something wrong with the insidious crazy prepackaged meaning that we've all been handed down over the last four or 500 years, maybe even longer Mm -hmm. for certain places in the world. Right. So I can't tell you what matters to you. Just like you can't tell me what matters to me. Ironically reminds me of the definition around trauma, right? A trauma involves a perceived or literal threat to one's physical or emotional well-being. I think we could extend that out to like social well-being, right? Spiritual well-being. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But that threat perceived a literal is going to bring out feelings of terror, helplessness, or a lack of control, powerlessness in your life, right? That's the American Psychiatric Association's definition of trauma with some adaptation going all the way back to 2000, right? And it's grown over time because of what we understand about the body and relationships and people, blah, blah, blah. But the key term is perceived or literal. Mm-hmm. I can't tell you what's traumatic. Right? I can listen to your story and bear witness to your suffering and hear in there, are you describing experiences that were inescapable, that made you feel powerless, terrified, helpless, a lack of control? I have to be a good listener to identify the trauma in your life. Right, And so I think with meaning and what matters, I think there's some cues there that we need to learn to listen to each other and begin to really bear witness to one another's sufferings, joys, interests passions, et cetera. And we start to see what matters. Now, what's clear is when we take that kind of perspective on society, family matters across the board. Yep. Because even if you hate them, they matter because they had an impact on you and you wish it was different and blah, blah, blah. For whatever reason, family and relationships matter. Yep. Being seen and validated in the context of who you are just based solely on having breath and occupying space matters. Mm. Yeah. Right. Like I think we could say ubiquitously across the board, no matter what language you speak, your religious belief, that matters. Yeah. There are some, we could probably identify some more of those, but that list maybe only goes for so long. I don't know. Right. I think it's it's worth interrogating at a point, but it is going to get to a point where there's going to start to be some differentiation. And here's the experience growing up in this country as a black man is the only people that have mattered are white people. Mm. Policy has backed up white posterity. Mm, yeah. It has not backed up the posterity of any other group but white people in mass. Mm-hmm. We've all been begging for it, fighting for it, dying for it, bleeding for it. Mm-hmm. But it was just 
while white people took land and took it and then made sure that precedents and policymaking lined up therein, right? So by default in America, white people matter and the things that mostly concern wealthy white people are the only things that matter. And the rest of us are generically trying to conform to it and or trying to also build space for what we want to matter to matter. I just don't even know that I can say that all the things that matter for me haven't been infected by that because I think it has, because that is Hmm. growing up in the West, you know? So like, I think that's the other premise. So. Yeah. Really interesting set of questions to explore. Well, all right, Michael. So this has been super fun. I want to ask you, uh, Really quick, a couple of rapid fire questions, and then we'll close it out here. Sure. So the first one is, what is a quote that's important to you? And what about it speaks to you? There are two. Two truths can exist in the same space at the same time. I learned that as a facilitator. And it was a great quote. Aristotle talks about um, intelligence or education, both of them being like sitting between the tension of ideas and mm-hmm. wrestling with it, blah, blah, blah. So I, I, I love that. And then... The other one is I heard this at a trauma conference from a, a woman of color, a black woman that I can't, whose name I can't remember. She, I think she was just attending. She wasn't a presenter, but she said, you know, trauma and grief schedule itself. And it's our job to schedule joy and celebration and meaningful interaction. And I have never forgotten that. And it, because it matters, like, I don't even, it doesn't even need explaining because it's so clear. We've talked about a lot in this conversation. We've covered a lot of territory. What question or set of questions would you have the listener start asking themselves on a regular basis? Do you allow others to drink of the fountain of humanity the way that you drink of the fountain of humanity or desire to drink of the fountain of humanity? How often are you practicing compassionate inquiry and curiosity with other people? Um, Do you seek to be understood or do you seek to understand? Are you willing to admit when you're wrong or admit when you don't know things? Are you willing to step outside of your comfort zone as a regular practice? Because safe space is a bit of a misnomer, Hmm. right? You only get to safety once you've built trust and you can't build trust without actually building relationship. And taking risk and being vulnerable. So, So are you willing to do those things? Otherwise... This idea around systems and nah, 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 what can I do right now? Like none of it matters. So yeah. those are the questions I think I got. Yeah. Thank you. And then what's the thing you know best? <laughs> Ooh, that's a really, it's such an interesting question. I challenge because of everything I talked about with epistemology, like I'm challenging what I know all the time and wisdom and expertise. I'm like, what the, do I know that? What do I know? How do I know? What do I know best? I know. I'm just going to say, I know love best. Hmm. I'm not a master at romantic relationships. I want to clarify what I mean by I know love best. And I'm not a Christian, but I am going to use a Judeo-Christian quote because I do think it's clear. Love is patient. Love is kind. Mm. Right. There's a whole verse that talks about these things that love, Mm -hmm. what love is, about what love is. And what I know about love is that it should be equally extended to all people without qualifiers. Trust should require some qualifiers, but love doesn't need a qualifier. Hmm. And the way that I love you should show up in the context of the relationship that we have. It should be based on your needs and my needs. Right. Um, And that's where the work is. Right. Mm -hmm. So I know what love is. I think I know love best, 
but I gotta, I, I'm working out the commitment of the work to love. Like, cause that, that's hard. Mm-hmm. Cause people don't do things that always make you want to love them. And I don't always do things that make people want to love me, but I do think what I know best is love. And I'm, you can never know too much. And I, I don't know enough about love, but it is what I know best. I love that. Thank you. This is a quote that might go with you going forward. Yeah. When you said that, it reminded me of uh, a quote from a book I've yet to read, but it was on my reading list. And I just remember seeing this and I just pulled it up. So I'm just going to read you this little passage really quick. Please. This is from the book, All About Love, New Visions by Bell Hooks. Hmm. And so I'm going to quote, I'm, I'm just directly quoting here. The book says, I spent years searching for a meaningful definition of the word love and was deeply relieved when I found one in psychiatrist M. Scott Peck's classic self-help book, The Road Less Traveled, first published in 1978. Fantastic book. Phenomenal book, for sure. So back to the quote, echoing the work of Eric Fromm, he defines love as, quote, the will to extend oneself for the purpose of nurturing one's own or another's spiritual growth, end quote. Explaining further, he continues, love is as love does. Love is an act of will. Namely, it's both an intention and an action. Will implies choice. We do not have to love. We choose to love. Since the choice must be made to nurture growth, this definition counters the more widely accepted assumption that we love instinctually. Mm, Yes, yes, absolutely. Love it. That feels right. That feels like what you're talking about. That is what I'm talking about. Good call. Well, there we go. (laughs) Good call. All right. Well, Mike, it has been such a pleasure hanging out with you today. Same. Thank you. Thank you for the conversation, for the work you're doing, for all of it. So just in closing out, where can people reach out to you and, and what would you love to leave the listener with? The name of my firm is a strategic design firm, aptly called Human Nature for all the things that I've talked about. Hey, there we go. With one N. So our website is human nature, H-U-M-A-N-A-T-U-R-E dot works, human nature works. I'm Mike at human nature dot works. But what do I want to leave you with that? Um... You know, exploring the science of our humanity is actually so fun and engaging. And I think if you just gave it a shot, you would be so thrilled to learn things that are going to help you work better. You'll understand yourself better. I used to have people tell me all the time that like kids aren't going to want to learn about neuroscience. Older people aren't going to want to learn about brain science. I have never met a person through a workshop I've done that has not been ignited by this information. Mm -hmm. And it's not because of me. It's because people are seeing themselves in the content. Now, they might not like some of my opinions (laughs) about what it implies (laughs) with our systems, but they actually appreciate learning about the mechanics of their own humanity. Mm. That I don't get pushed back on. So I invite you into it. And I hope we get you better tools so that it doesn't have to be such an academic pursuit. It's not always an academic pursuit, right? There are some good materials out there, but you know, I hope I hope hope we get smarter about how we educate. Hundred percent. All right. Well, with that, thank you so much, and it's been an absolute pleasure. Same, brother. Take care. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate and review us on iTunes. That helps us reach way more people and build this community up. For show notes, links to the resources, and everything else we discussed, please go to enliven.fm. Feel free to reach out with questions, feedback, or just to say hello by emailing connect at enliven.fm. Be sure to subscribe, and until next time, my friends, leave them better than you found them. We'll see you soon.